I'm so glad the day that God brought Ed and Diane Lacey to Luke 4.18. God always prepares ahead. He knew that Brother Fred would be out. And he always prepares his best for us. And God has brought Ed Lacey to us today. Every time he preaches, every time he declares the word of God, it's the power of God's Holy Spirit and anointing on him. I know he's got a word for us today. And he's going to talk to us through his servant, Ed Lacey. God bless you, brother. Would you find in your Bible Mark chapter 10? It's a joy to serve you this morning. Uh, Mark chapter 10, we're going to look at this morning. And it's a familiar story if you've been in the Word of God for quite a while. Uh, Brother Fred has told us many times on many occasions, he's taught us the true meaning of eternal life. Now, the Lord Jesus says to us in John 17, 3, This is eternal life, that you may know God the Father and Jesus Christ his Son, whom he has sent. Eternal life is not found in a place. Eternal life is not found in a plan, a formula. It's not found in walking to a platform. Eternal life is not even found in walking to a preacher or an evangelist. Jesus says eternal life is when a man, a woman, or a young person enters into a life-transforming relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. They come into a living and vital union with Jesus, so that because of that union, Jesus Christ becomes the supreme love of their life. Jesus becomes the sovereign Lord of their life. Jesus Christ becomes their central reason for existence. This is why God would take rebels, sinners, and bring them into a love relationship with His Son. So that because of that relationship, Jesus becomes the chief object of my devotion. The chief source of my delight. My central reason for living. So that I treasure Him, as we sang this morning, above all other people or things. I'd rather have Jesus. And the only way that a person experiences and enjoys this eternal life is when they come to Jesus Christ on His conditions. It's not coming to a platform. It's not coming to a preacher. It's not coming to a plan. It's coming to a person on His conditions. And here in Mark chapter 10, you remember the story of a man who came running to Jesus. Can you imagine how that happened this morning? And he fell on his knees before Jesus. And he asked the Lord Jesus life's most important question, how can I, how may I obtain eternal life? But he went away without eternal life because he was not willing to come on Jesus' terms. Notice it with me in verse 17. Now as he, that's the Lord Jesus, was going out on the road, one came running 
knelt before him and asked him, Good teacher, good master, what shall I do that I might inherit eternal life? So Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good but one, and that is God. You know the commandments. Do not commit adultery. Do not murder. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Do not defraud. Honor your father and your mother. And he answered and said to him, Teacher, all these things I have kept from my youth. Then Jesus, looking at him, loved him and said to him, One thing you lack. Go your way, sell whatever you have and give to the poor, and you'll have treasure in heaven. And come, take up the cross and follow me. But he was sad at this word, and he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. Then Jesus looked around and said to his disciples, How hard it is for those who have riches to enter the kingdom of God. And the disciples were astonished at his words, but Jesus answered again and said to them, Children, how hard it is for those who trust in riches to enter the kingdom of God. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. And they were greatly astonished, saying among themselves, Who then can be saved? But Jesus looked at them and said, With men it is impossible, but not with God, for with God all things are possible. Would you notice with me, first of all, the man in this message? The scripture tells us he was a man of position. We call him the rich young what? Ruler. Luke 18 tells us he was a ruler, but he wasn't just any kind of ruler. He was a religious ruler. That's the Greek word there. He was probably a lay leader in the synagogue. Maybe he even presided over the services in the synagogue. This man was a highly esteemed man in the community. He he was a well-respected man. He, He was a religious man. As a matter of fact, he could have been the citizen of the year in Mobile, Alabama. But he was without eternal life. He was a man of position, but not only that, he was a man of possessions. We call him the rich young ruler. He was a very wealthy man. In other words, he had all of his needs met and beyond his needs. That's what it means to be rich. I just got back from Cuba 48 hours ago. The average income is 15 U.S. dollars a month. The equivalent of $15 a month, and you get some rice and beans from the government. Friends, everybody in this room is rich. Whether you realize it or not, you're rich. But the problem is riches do not profit in the day of judgment. This man was a man of position. He was a man of possessions, but he was a man with a great problem. 
There was a gnawing void within his soul. There was a vacuum in his heart that all of his position and all of his possessions had not satisfied. And that's why St. Augustine has well said, You have made us for yourself, O Lord, and our hearts are restless until they find their rest in you. This man's soul was restless, and it sent him to Jesus. But not only the man, do you notice the manner in which this man came to Jesus? He came urgently. Uh, The verse says in verse 17, one came running. You know, in all the years of preaching now, 28 years, all the crusades, seven, six or seven hundred of them in America, 125 times overseas, there's only one time I saw somebody come running. But this man came running. He had a profound need, an emptiness in his life, and it gave him a sense of urgency. There was no real genuineness in his soul that he had eternal life. And he saw an opportunity to speak to Jesus and he comes urgently. But not only that, he came reverently. He came and fell on his knees, the scripture says. Can you imagine if that happened in a service in a Baptist church on Sunday morning in America? I mean, there's a large crowd around this man, possibly some of his friends, some of his acquaintances, some of his religious cohorts, but he doesn't care what anybody thinks. He is not embarrassed to admit his desperate need for eternal life. So he comes reverently, he comes urgently, he comes publicly. And do you know this morning you could come running? You could fall on your knees? You could come publicly, but you could go away lost if you don't come to Jesus on his conditions. He came in the right manner. He came with the right motive. He said, what must I do to obtain eternal life? At least he was concerned about eternal things. That's half the battle with speaking to most people. Most people are so consumed with temporary and material things that they are dangerously neglectful when concerning the condition of their soul and the destination of their soul. But at least this man understood there's a heaven and there's a hell. And not everybody's going to heaven. At least he understood there's coming a day of judgment when I'm going to stand before God. And he was deeply concerned about the condition and the destination of his soul. And you know, a person can come with the right motive, but they can still go away lost if they don't come to Jesus on his terms. And not only that, did you notice he came to the right man? He came to the right person. He came to the God-man, the one who has the words of eternal life, the one who is the way and the truth and the life. But verse 22 says, but he was sad at Jesus' word and he went away sorrowful. Think about that. A man comes running. He falls on his knees. He says, what can I do to have eternal life? But he walks away without a saving relationship with Jesus. 
This is incredible. This is astounding. Have you ever thought, why doesn't Jesus give him a formula? Why doesn't Jesus say salvation is simple as AB3, admit you're a sinner, believe on me, and pray this prayer? Have you noticed Jesus never asked anybody to repeat a prayer? Jesus says to him, go sell everything you have, come take up the cross and follow me. What? He he holds the term so high. Why doesn't Jesus just lower the terms and, and just bring him in? Maybe he'll have a real experience later. He says, how can I have eternal life? Why doesn't Jesus say, well, let one of my counselors take you to the counseling room for five minutes. Talk to you, we'll bring you out. He says, go sell everything you have and come take up the cross and follow me. That's impossible. Let me ask you, did Jesus preach the wrong message? Did Jesus confuse the message? Or have we confused the message? Have we preached the wrong message? Have we so lowered the terms that we have 17 million Baptists and the FBI can't find 12 million of them? What are the issues that Jesus confronts this young man with and confronts you and I with? Well, let's look at them today. Four issues that he confronts this rich young ruler with. Notice the second half of verse 17. And as you're noticing, I pray you'll think about yourself first. And if you come to realize you've come to Jesus on his conditions, then you'll think of others secondly. Notice first, he confronts this young man with his fallen Character. He says to Jesus in the second half of verse 17, Good master, what shall I do that I might attain eternal life? Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good but one, and that is God. Uh, The young man calls Jesus good master. The word good there means good to the core. It means perfectly good, intrinsically good. But Jesus, Jesus, instead of receiving the compliment, he says to the young man, no one is good to the core but one, and that is God. The young man did not realize that he was face to face with the only person who is good to the core. He was face to face with Emmanuel, God with us. He was face to face with God manifest in the flesh. He, looking into his being, was the one who the prophet Isaiah had seen 700 years before when the seraphim were crying, Holy, holy, holy. And Jesus confronts this young man with the character of God, and by doing so, he confronts this young man with the reality that only God is uniquely and perfectly good to the core, and young man, you're not. No one is good but one, that is God, and young man, that includes you. You are not good to the core. You have a fallen character, young man. 
you have a bad heart. God says you have a desperately wicked heart, a hopelessly wicked heart compared to the holy and righteous character of God. Friends, this young man was making a terrible miscalculation. He had never seen his sinfulness compared to the holy and righteous character of God. So he had never seen that compared to God, he is corrupted in his heart. He is spiritually bankrupt in his heart. He is a lost, destitute sinner in desperate need of the grace of God. But the problem is, this young man was thinking too highly of himself And he wasn't thinking highly enough of God. He was comparing himself to other sinners instead of comparing himself to the holiness and the righteousness of God. Do you know that if we are left to ourselves, every single time we will compare ourselves to other people instead of comparing ourselves to the holiness and the righteousness of God? If we are left to ourselves and somebody talks to us about the gospel, you know what a person will say. I've heard it many times. They say this, well, I consider myself to be a good person. I try to be a good, try to be a good neighbor, a good citizen. I try to live a good life. I I try to keep the golden rule. Uh, Brother Ed, I, I agree I'm a sinner, but I'm a good sinner. And compared to other people, I'm a good sinner. That's like a worm in your backyard in the garden, crawling around in the dirt and looking at other worms and saying, well, compared to that worm, I'm a pretty good worm. One worm compared to another worm is still a worm. And one sinner compared to another sinner is still a a sinner. This young man was comparing himself by the wrong standard. And do you know hell is going to be overflowing with people who thought too highly of themselves and they never came to a place in their life when they thought highly enough of God? Have you ever seen your life compared to the holiness of God? Are you saying, Ed, that no one is good enough, no one is moral enough, no one is righteous enough to escape the judgment and wrath of God on their own and enter into the presence of a holy God on their own? That's exactly what I'm saying. For how good is good enough for God? Well, Jesus said, be perfect, even as my Father in heaven is perfect. God's requirement for escaping His eternal judgment and entering into His presence is perfect righteousness. When I was a young boy, there used to be an ivory soap uh, commercial on television, and ivory soap, selling their soap, boasted that their soap was 99.44% pure soap. That may be good enough to sell soap, but it's not good enough to escape the judgment of God and enter into the presence of God in heaven. We need a 100% righteousness. 
We need a righteousness that is equal to the righteousness of God. But the Bible clearly tells us there is how many righteous. And the best of our righteousnesses to a holy God are as filthy rags. Are you aware that the best 30 minutes you've ever lived in your life has enough sin in it to condemn you to hell forever? Not the worst 30, the best 30 you've ever lived, God says, is filthy rags to a holy God. And Jesus is saying to this young man, young man, you need to see, first of all, you have a bad heart. You have a fallen character. But our Lord digs deeper into the issue with this young man. He says, not only do you have a fallen character, but notice secondly, in verse 19, you failed the commandments. Now the young man comes running. He falls on his knees. He comes to the right person. He asks the right question. How can I obtain eternal life? And Jesus says in verse 19, you know the commandments. And he quotes the second half of the moral law of God. In verse in Matthew 19 and verse 17, in the same passage, Jesus says, if you want to enter into life, keep the commandments. What? This guy's come running. He's fallen on his knees. He says, how can I have eternal life? And Jesus says, keep the commandments. Why doesn't Jesus say, just repeat this prayer with me? Uh, Just accept me in your heart. All you have to do is receive me as your personal... No. He says, keep the commandments. But Ed, nobody's ever kept the commandments except Jesus. That's exactly right. Jesus is confronting the young man with the reality. Young man, not only were you born with a fallen character, but you have proved it in that you have utterly shattered the commandments. Young man, I'm trying to show you that not only do you have a bad heart, you have a bad record. He comes running and says, how can I obtain eternal life? And Jesus confronts him with the second half of the moral law. Why does Jesus do that? Because the Bible says, for by the law comes the knowledge of sin. The law of God, the Ten Commandments, are the plow that God uses to break up the soil of the human heart. The law, the Ten Commandments, are the instrument that God employs to penetrate the heart of a person and reveal to them their bankrupt condition. It is the mirror that God uses to reveal to a person that they are guilty criminals against the law of God. May I ask you this morning, have you ever seen your life in light of the moral law of God? Did you notice the commandments Jesus confronted him with? He said, Jesus said, do not commit adultery. But if a man or a woman should lust after another, they've already committed adultery in their heart. 
The commandment says do not murder, but Jesus says that anger with another person that is not perfectly righteous anger is the root of all murders. Anger in the heart, you might as well commit murder. Holding grudges, bitterness, all that comes from anger. Anger is the root of murder. Jesus says do not steal. Have you ever taken even the smallest thing that didn't belong to you? You ever stolen a little time at work? Should have been working, but you were goofing off. Have you ever stolen anything no matter the value of the item? Jesus says, do not bear false witness. Have you ever told a lie? Even a little white lie? How many lies must a person tell? To become a liar from God's perspective? Only one. And all liars will have their part in the lake of fire which burns forever. You shall not defraud. You shall not covet others' property or others' possessions or others' people. The Scripture says, honor your father and your mother. Did you perfectly obey and honor your father and your mother all of your childhood and teenage years? Not only in your words, but your actions and your attitudes and your motives. May I ask you a question this morning in the back and here in the front? How many would be honest enough to say, I have broken at least one of those commandments on one occasion in my life? Would you, would you raise your hand? If it's not up, you're breaking one right now. You see, we have a major problem. And the scripture says, he who keeps all the commands and is only offended, only broken in one point, is guilty of shattering them all. And Jesus is confronting this young man with the reality, young man, you have a bad heart. You have a bad record before God. It is as if God has given everyone in this room a final examination. Do you remember those in school? At semester exam? God has given each one of us a final exam. And the final exam are the Ten Commandments. And from God, the grade is either a perfect A or an F. There are no B's, there are no C's, there are no D's. You either make a perfect A because you've perfectly obeyed the law all of your life, or you receive an F. And friends, the exam papers have come back. And you got an F. You have received an F. Well, Ed, my F's better than your F. You used to be an old rock drummer. My F has to be better than yours. It's still an F. My F's almost a D. You're deceiving yourself. Your F is an F. And God doesn't grade on the curve. And the wages of making an F is death. The soul that sins, that breaks the law, shall surely die. 
accursed, condemned is everyone who does not continue in all things which are written in the law. What about you? I'm not asking you if you've come to a platform or if you've come to a preacher, if you've come to a prayer. I'm asking you, have you ever seen the immensity of your problem in light of the Ten Commandments, the moral law of God? Has there ever been a time that you saw your life as a living offense to God in His holiness and in His commandments? Has there been a time that you saw yourself a guilty sinner and nothing but a guilty sinner in the presence of God? Did you notice this young man's response? How self-righteous and self-deceived he was? In verse 20, he answered and said to Jesus, Teacher, Master, all these things I've kept from my youth. He's still deceiving himself. He hasn't kept these from his youth. The problem is he has a superficial view of the Ten Commandments, of the moral law of God. For in reality, we're about to see he had broken all the moral law of God. For he had broken the first and greatest commandment to love the Lord your God with 100% of your heart, mind, soul, and strength. He had broken the first law, you shall have no other gods before me. Because he had another God, didn't he? And what was his God? It was his money, his wealth, his possessions. He was an idol worshiper. He was, in fact, an idolatrous blasphemer against God. His entire life was a life of idolatry and blasphemy against God because, as Brother Ed has so wonderfully told us this morning, God has created you for a purpose. He has created you so that you might come into a life-transforming relationship with His Son so that Jesus Christ might be the supreme love of your life. He might be the center of your universe, the king of your life. And listen, anything else is idolatry. Anything else is spiritual adultery worthy of eternal judgment. This young man is self-deceived, he's self-righteous, he is a blasphemous idolater, and he doesn't even realize it. But oh, thank God, notice verse 21. Jesus, looking at him, loved him. Jesus, beholding him with his omniscience, the God who knows every secret sin, every idle word, every selfish attitude and action, the God who knows every selfish motive, the God, the Son, who knows that this young man is a blasphemous idolater and yet looking into his soul with eyes that are like the flaming fire, he loves him. And friends, others can look at you externally, but the Lord Jesus sees you to your core. He sees you for who you really are. 
And yet, looking at you in all your idolatry, He loves you. He so loved you that God the Son left the glory of heaven, was born of a Virgin Mary, and He walked on this earth, Emmanuel, God with us, tempted in all points like we are tempted, but He made a perfect A. Every moment of every day, He made a perfect A in His thoughts, in His actions, in His reactions, in His attitudes, in His motives. Perfect A. He knew no sin. And then the Bible says, after perfectly obeying the law that we have all utterly shattered on the most important day of history, He bound Himself to a cross with cords of love. Love for His Father to complete this great mission. Love for idolaters like you and me. And He went through all kinds of physical suffering. But then at midday, It became as midnight. And God the Father began to pour out all the judgment, all the wrath, all the condemnation on His Son that any sinner and every sinner who will come to Jesus on His conditions deserved. And there in those three hours of darkness, arrow after arrow of the wrath and the pure, just vengeance and holy judgment of God against the sins of every sinner who will repent and believe the Gospel were poured out on His sinless Son. And Jesus perfectly exhausted that wrath until he cried out of the darkness, My God! My God! Why have you abandoned me? I'll tell you why. So that I might not be abandoned. And so that sinners who would come to Jesus on his conditions might not be abandoned. God demonstrated His love toward you. And that while we were yet enemies, sinners, rebels, blasphemous idolaters, Jesus died for sinners. Behold Him, He beloved Him. And He said, one thing you lack. It's actually two things, but they're so intricately uh, tied together. Jesus says one thing you lack. And what is it? He's saying to the young man, you need to turn and you need to trust. And we're closing in a few moments. Notice what he says to the young man, second half of verse 21. He says, first young man, if you're going to come to me on my terms, if you're going to know this eternal life, you must forsake your idol. He says, go your way, sell whatever you have and give it to the poor and you'll have treasure in heaven. Why does he tell this young man to go sell everything he has and give it away? First of all, to reveal to him that he has broken the whole law because he's broken the first commandment. He does not love the Lord his God with all of his heart, mind, soul, and strength. He has another idol. He has another God that he loves. But also to reveal to the young man that he has this idol, his God, his money, 
and he's living in blasphemy against God. And if he's going to embrace Jesus, who is eternal life, he must be willing to let go of his idol. Jesus is saying to him, and he's saying to us today, us who are religious, he says, if you're going to come to me on my terms, if you're going to embrace me, who embracing Jesus is the essence of eternal life, you must forsake your idol. You cannot serve two masters. You cannot embrace two gods, two supreme loves. You can only have one supreme love. The Lord's saying, if I'm coming into your life, I'm not coming in to be placed among your other gods. I'm only coming in to be your Lord and God. If you desire eternal life, you must forsake your idol. He's talking about repentance. The Thessalonians turned from idols to serve the living God. What is an idol? It's anything or anyone that is the supreme love of your life if it's not the Lord Jesus. Whatever or whoever it is, if Jesus is not number one, whoever or whatever is, is an idol. And it's blasphemy against God. Whoever or whatever is first place in your life, it may be possession. Like this young man. It may be wealth, the desire for wealth. It may be pleasure. It may be TV. It may be movies. It may be hunting, fishing. It may be the tigers or the tide. It can be a lot of different things. It can be immorality. It can be drugs, alcohol, all the amusements of this world. If they're number one, and Jesus has never been, you're an idolater. It could be a career, uh, some position on your job. It could be a spouse. It can be a person, a child. It can even be a grandchild. If any man hate not his father, mother, sister, brother, even his own life, he cannot be my disciples. doesn't mean hate your relatives. It means I and I alone have the right to be the number one love. It could be many different things. But the man has come running. He's come kneeling. He says, how can I have eternal life? And the tragedy is in many churches today, the preacher or the counselor would get him to repeat a prayer, pronounce him saved, and baptize him. Give him his first set of love offering envelopes in a couple of weeks. He was the rich young ruler. But Jesus loved him too much to give him a false religious experience. Jesus said, you must forsake your idol. If you lack forsaking your idol, you lack conversion. If you lack conversion, you lack eternal life. And there's one, only one alternative to eternal life. And that's eternal separation from God. Jesus is talking about repentance. Repent and be converted so that your sins 
may be blotted out. Repent. God commands all men, all women, all young people everywhere to repent. And the Lord Jesus says, if you do not repent, you will perish. He says you must forsake your idol. And finally, he says you must follow me. Did you notice this young man would have been happy to tack Jesus onto his life? but he was unwilling for Jesus to be his life. He would have been thrilled to come to Jesus on his own conditions. But he was unwilling to come to Jesus on Jesus' conditions. He would have been satisfied to have Jesus as one of the compartments of his life. But he was unwilling to have Jesus as king of all the compartments of his life. And he would have been thrilled to come to a platform. He'd already come running and knelt before the platform. He would have been happy to come to a preacher and repeat a little prayer that's not in the Bible. But he was not willing to come to Jesus in repentance. And Jesus finally confronts him. And he confronts us today with one last issue, and it is saving faith. He says, come, sell everything you have, verse 21. Go your way, sell everything you have, give it to the poor. You'll have treasure in heaven. Here it is. Come, take up the cross, and follow me. He's saying to the young man, give me your heart, give me your life, give me your mind, give me your soul, give me your obedience. Commit your life to me. Young man, I'm about to go to the cross and I'm calling on you to place your personal reliance in who I am and what I'm about to do. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you shall be saved. The word believe on there is the Greek word pastuanais. It means to commit your life into someone who is Christ, the Messiah. Someone who is Jesus, Jehovah God who saves. Someone who is Lord, Master. Now listen to Jesus' invitation. He's explaining what the nature of saving faith is. And he says to the young man, I'm offering myself to you, not only as a Savior to be trusted, but as a King to be followed. Do you know when Jesus rose from the dead, God made Jesus both Lord and Christ? Both King and Savior? And the scripture says if you're going to be saved, you must confess with your mouth Jesus as fire insurance. No. Lord. Master. King. Ruler, and it means not much more than saying it with your mouth. It means you come to realize who He is and you are willing to do something about it. Embrace Him as your 
king. That's what Jesus says to this young man. I'm calling on you, young man, to cast your life on the mercy and grace of God. I'm calling on you, young man, to confess that you do have a fallen character, that you have shattered the law of God. And I'm calling on you to confess your neediness of a Savior and to put your personal confidence in what I'm going to do at the cross. Because if you'll put your trust in me, your reliance on me, I'm going to wash away all your sin. I'm going to clothe you with that perfect right that you desperately need. But, young man, you must be willing to follow me. The call to true conversion is a call to become a follower of Jesus. It's not just a call to show up at a church for an hour and a half or three hours. It's a call to be a follower of of Jesus. A call to eternal life is a call to a life transforming relationship with Jesus. It's a conversion away from my ways, my will, my plans, my purposes, my agenda, and it is a conversion to the person of Jesus. His person, His plans, His agenda, His ways. It is a commitment of your life. Come! Take up the cross and follow me. For 29 years, I was on the side of the line Brother Ed talked about this morning that I was the king of my life. I was calling the shots. I was running the show. I was living for myself. But when conversion takes place, the person steps across the line of belonging to themselves and they step across the line into the territory where they now belong to Jesus. You're not your own. You've been bought. He comes running. He comes kneeling. He comes to the right person. He says, how can I obtain eternal life? Can you imagine him there? On his knees. Jesus loves him too much to water down the message. Jesus knows he must forsake his idol and follow him. And he's there on his knees counting the cost of conversion. And he finally says, no. No. I won't do that. And he went away lost. And unless something happened that the Bible doesn't say, he has now spent 2,000 years in hell because he was not willing to give Jesus his sins to be forgiven. He was not willing to give Jesus his life to be ruled. How will you go away today? Will you turn from your idols? Will you trust in Jesus? Will you embrace Jesus as your king? Have you come to Jesus?
on His terms? Not have you come to a preacher or a platform, but have you come to this King on His terms? You say, Brother Ed, this is impossible. It's possible to walk down an aisle. It's possible to come to a platform. It's possible to come to an altar. It's possible to come to a preacher. But to come to this king on these conditions? That's impossible. You're right. It is impossible with man but not with God. With God, all things are possible. Listen, I'm closing. When God converts a person, He gives them the grace to turn from their idols. He gives them the grace to embrace Jesus as King. Salvation is freely offered, but it's offered on Jesus' terms.